We recently finished our journey through the book of Exodus, but we are no means, by no means done with the book of Exodus. As promised, we have doubled back to narrow our focus in on the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. And, and we're taking the time to do this because uh, the Ten Words are foundational for the whole law of God and serve as perspectives on ways that we can love God. They, they each tell us how we can love God from uh, a different angle or perspective, if you will. And so we've talked about thinking of it like this. Um, The Ten Commandments are like major arteries that are all part of the same system. They share the same blood pumped by the same heart. Now, if all the arteries are kept healthy, the blood flows properly, and the heart is kept beating. But if just one of them is fatally severed, blood escapes furiously, and the heart stops beating. The point is that though all of the Ten Commandments are distinct, they're part of the same whole. They form a unity. They share the same heart, the heart of God. And they teach us how to love God back. Ten Commandments are not designed to give us ten steps to healthier living or to function as a Christian version of the Eightfold Path. They are not about helping us uh, help ourselves or helping us make ourselves acceptable to God. They are about helping us love God back in response to the love that he has given to us. And one of the things that becomes quickly apparent when we look at the Ten Commandments, or at least I hope it became readily apparent to you when we walked through them the first time, is that none of us can keep all of these commandments perfectly. We all mess up. We all break all of these commandments all of the time. Uh, If you missed that sermon, you can double back and listen to it. It's Exodus 20 uh, online and and see how you stack up against these Ten Commandments. Uh, For those of you that were here, you remember we made the checklist and we saw that we failed on every count, even the commandments that we thought we had kept. And what we learned is that these commandments teach us not only how to love God back, but they also reveal to us our own hearts in light of God's heart. I think naturally we all see ourselves and our own lives in kind of a carnival mirror. You, you've seen a carnival mirror before, right? They kind of distort the truth. If you look in one, your head can get really big or really small, or likewise in your midsection, you know, you get really fat or really skinny with just a glance. And I think prior to God's revelation of himself to us, we often look at ourselves and our lives through a carnival mirror. We think we're really not that bad. I think we've really got things together that we're genuinely pretty good people. But when we see ourselves in the true mirror of God's character, our actual status becomes clear. We are in need of a Savior. Ten Commandments not only show us how to love God, but they serve as a mirror that help us understand our need for God's grace and for God's Savior. And so as we study them, two things should happen. We should be filled with gratitude for the grace and love of God that have been given to us in Christ Jesus, and our gratitude should propel us to offer loving obedience to our loving God who has rescued us from our slavery to sin and death and brought us into sonship and life. All that said, let's turn once more to Exodus chapter 20 again this morning. 
Last week, Brett helped us consider the first commandment, and this week we're going to consider it alongside the second commandment. Uh, The first commandment, if you remember, is you shall have no gods before or beside me. The second commandment is summarized in you shall make no or have no graven images or idols, and you shouldn't bow down to or worship them. Uh, One of my goals as I was thinking about this became to help us memorize the Ten Commandments together. If you remember the first time we walked through them, we pointed out how uh, Stephen Colbert had a guest on the Late Show, as a congressman or representative of some type, and he was uh, lobbying to have the Ten Commandments remain in uh, a courthouse or something, and Stephen Colbert asked him if he could name the Ten Commandments, and the guy said, all of them? He said, yes, and then the guy said, "Uh, do not murder, honor your family, and then he gave up, and like Colbert's like, one, two, you don't got them, right? <laughs> like he couldn't even name all the Ten Commandments, and he wanted them displayed. He was arguing for them to be displayed, and I think likewise, as Christians, we often will appeal to the law of God, but we don't, we don't actually know the Ten Commandments. Like, could you name the Ten Commandments right now, if you're honest with yourself? I'm not going to call anybody out or put you on the spot. My guess is probably not, most of us. And so what I want to do as we walk through uh, the Ten Commandments together is to help you memorize them. And this may seem rudimentary or elementary to some of you, but I think it will be helpful. Uh, And so I learned this little, uh, via YouTube, like finger exercise to learn the commandments. And so each week we're going to learn a new one. And so to help us remember the first commandment, you can stick a finger up like this. Come on, come on, I can see. I'll put you in one. And you say, God is number one, and there are no others beside him, right? And then for the second commandment, you can do two, do this, like a little NC State Wolfpack kind of deal. Looks a little bit like an idol. You shall not make any idols or bow down to them, right? You can do a little rock action there. So we're not going to have any other gods beside the one true God, and we're not going to bow down to any idols. We've memorized the first two commandments a little bit, and we'll work on it. Uh, We're well on our way, two out of ten so far, but we'll come back to it next week. All that said, these first two commandments are interconnected. The first commandment tells us, I had a little accent on that, that was weird. The first commandment tells us who God is, and the second commandment tells us how we are to worship and love him, right? Actually, all the commandments tell us how, but we're going to concern ourselves this morning just with the first two, and that's how our outline is going to play out. We're going to consider the who of our worship and the how of our worship. And our main idea is this. The God who created and redeems reveals himself and how he is to be loved, how he is to be worshipped. Let's pray and we'll get started. Father, may your joy be our strength, your sovereignty our confidence, your timing, our schedule, your faithful love, our focus, and your son, our hope. Help us to hear your voice and your word this morning and to submit ourselves to it. Change us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's remember the context in which these Ten Commandments are given. God has drawn his people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt and into relationship with himself. God draws his people out so that he can draw them in. 
And so after traversing the wilderness and being united, they're getting ready to be united to God in covenant. They stand at the foot of Mount Sinai, which is wrapped in smoke. It's enveloped with the consuming fire of the Lord's presence. It's filled with lightning and thunder and trumpet sounds. It really is a frightening scene. And the mountain is said to be shaking alongside with the people. And it's in this context that God speaks. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. God answers our who question right out of the gate. Who are we to worship the God who saves? And we cannot understand the you shalls that follow apart from the I am. Right? God prefaces the ten words with an explanation of his person. The preamble is key to our understanding, everything that follows. Just like the, the preamble of the United States Constitution, probably learned it a little bit in elementary school, right? We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union and all the rest. Right? This is functioning in the same way. That helps us to understand our Constitution, why we're establishing the United States as a republic. So too does the preamble here help us to understand the establishing of God's laws. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Yahweh is the God who created and redeems his people from slavery. He's the God who makes and the God who saves. The great I am is the only God, and he is the only one that's worthy of being worshipped. He is the who of our worship. In the contemporary West, monotheism, the the worship of one God, uh, comes not really as a surprise to us since we're pretty used to it. However, to the Israelites, it would have come as quite a shock. I mean, they just come out of Egypt, which was one of the most polytheistic cultures to ever exist. Polytheism is simply uh, the worship of many gods, and the Egyptians were really good at this. They had a god for everything. So this is the culture that they come out of and likely that they participated in. It was likely that the Israelites had worshipped many gods right alongside the, the Egyptians. It's all tied back to the Ten Commandments. You remember all of the commandments were showing how the Lord, the God of Israel, had victory over these small g counterfeit gods. He was showing that he was mighty over everything. I think this was best seen in the turning of the Nile to blood. Right? Egypt really worshipped the Nile. All their life was dependent upon the Nile, and uh, God turns it to blood to say, I am greater than even the Nile. And so this is the culture, the polytheistic culture that the Israelites come out of. This is a pretty radical prohibition. I mean, they had simply assumed, along with every other nation at the time in the ancient world, that each nation had its own gods, and they were legitimate gods. But the God of Israel, he's completely intolerant. He doesn't acknowledge the legitimacy of any god aside from himself. He says, don't have anyone but me. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob demands that he be worshipped, that he alone be worshipped. Friends, we worship the Trinitarian God of Scripture because he alone is creator, because he alone can redeem, and there is no one like him. God revealed himself to Israel in their exodus out of Egypt, but, I, but I want, what I want you to know is that he has revealed himself more fully to us in the gospel in our exodus, out of our slavery to sin and into sonship. Israel uh, knew Yahweh. 
as their God in the Exodus, and, and they had hints about his plurality, about his multi-personal nature, but they didn't see it as clearly as we do with the coming of Christ. Paul's summary of our redemption in Galatians 4, 4 through 8 shows us how all three persons of the Godhead are at work in our salvation. This is what he writes. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. But in the past, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. We used to be enslaved to idols. But God the Father sent God the Son to redeem us and has adopted us by God the Holy Spirit. It takes the fullness of the Godhead to accomplish our salvation. And it's in the gospel. It's it's in the gospel that we see clearly God's three-in-oneness, his great depths and richness. I mean, there's nobody like our triune God. Uh, The doctrine of the Trinity is, is really complicated. Uh, and it's an important one, and so we're going to try to summarize it really quick. We say God is um, one, God eternally exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's not tritheism with three different gods. It's not modalism or unipersonalism where uh, God takes the different forms and manifests himself in different ways like a dude putting on different masks. No, it's one God who exists eternally in three persons, God is not more fundamentally one than he is three, and he's not more fundamentally three than he is one. All of our human analogies that attempt to explain this Trinitarian God of ours fall woefully short. I mean, what we see in the doctrine of the Trinity is that our God is big, that he's mysterious, that he's awesome. I love what uh, Dr. Moore says about our God's tri-unity. He writes this, Learning of God's oneness and threeness in terms of wonder and awe is a good place to start vaccinating ourselves from the kind of sterile rationalism that can lead to a boring, despairing, tragically normal sort of life. What he's getting at is oftentimes I think our temptation in the West, especially where reason is exalted as Lord over all, we try to iron out every aspect of God. We try to understand every nitty-gritty little detail. But God hasn't revealed himself to us in that way. We can't uh, reason ourselves into salvation, and we can't reason out all the depths and all the mysteries that exist within the person of God. And if we try, what we're going to find is that we give way to a sterile sort of rationalism. We'll find that our spiritual lives are dry. So the exhortation here as we regard uh, God's um, three-in-oneness is this. Don't put yourself out of your mystery. Instead, marvel at God's wisdom. Marvel at his incomparable, ununderstandable, inexhaustible excellencies. Delight that he has invited you to enter into the perfect community that exists within himself. I mean, rejoice in this mind-bending uniqueness. 
This is our God. This is the one to whom we ought to sing. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. This is who we are singing to. This is the God that is unparalleled. This is the God who says of himself in Isaiah 45, I am Yahweh and there is no other. There is no God but me. I will strengthen you. That you do not know me. So that all may know from the rising of the sun to its setting, there is no one but me. I am Yahweh and there is no other. There is no one like our God. He stands alone. He alone is worthy of worship. So so who do we worship? Not the false god of Islam. Not the false god of contemporary Judaism who denies Christ. Not the false god of Hinduism. Not the false gods of secular humanism. Not the false god of Mormonism or of Jehovah's Witnesses. We worship the one true God who has revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me and if you know me you will also know my father from now on you do not if you do not you do know him and have seen him we see who the father is in the person of Jesus Christ this belief that Jesus is the only way to God that he is God that he's accomplished our salvation is not a popular belief the religious pluralism that pollutes our cultural waters insists that all the world's religions, even non-religions, are all different pathways to the same God. Which I, I guess in one sense that's true because all paths lead to the judgment seat of Christ. But according to the first commandment, this is a bogus position. There is only one God. There is only one way. And he will suffer no idols. Not a popular position, but it's one Christians must hold. The ethicist John Frame comments, In many ways, Christians have an easy time in the modern West. For the most part, we're not asked to die or to suffer physically for our faith. But God does call us, on occasion, to hold unpopular beliefs. Can we not even do this much for Jesus? And if not, can we really claim to love God with all of our heart? At this point, our theology becomes a first commandment issue. It's a question of whether we value cultural trends more highly than God. Which do you value more? Cultural trends and acceptance or the acceptance of God? The God we worship is the great three-in-one God of the Bible. He's the God who lives, the God who creates, and the God who redeems. This is the God who we worship. Do you know him? That's the who of our worship. It's the first commandment. Now let's consider the how of our worship. Look at verses 4 through 6 in Exodus chapter 20. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or of the earth below, or in the waters under the earth. 
you must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sin to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Uh, Let's clear some of the brush away quickly because everybody's attention goes to the second part of the verse there, punishment of the father's sins onto uh, the children. We've talked about it a few times now, but let's try to explain it quickly once more. Throughout scripture, God's punishment is often giving people over to what they want, which is sin. And so when he gives people over to their sin, they are left to the consequences of their sin. And our experience as people just confirms this, that that our sin always affects everyone around us. What we call natural results is just an expression of God's law in operation, punishing breaches of his will. See, as long as children persist in sowing the sins of their parents, they're also going to reap the same harvest of God's just punishment. We also want to note here that the punishment is restricted to those who hate me. No one being punished is innocent. No one being punished is a lover of God here. God punishes rightfully those who hate him. We want to talk more about that. We can later. But now that we've cleared that up, let's talk about one of God's more unfashionable characteristics. It's his jealousy. I mean, this is an aspect of God that is typically as despised as his holy wrath and often even more misunderstood. Many conceive of God's jealousy as if it were like our own, a green-eyed monster, a cancerous, soul-ruining, soul-destroying vice that wilts the heart. I mean, our own jealousy is destructive in this way, and that's consistent with the definition. But God's jealousy is not, it's not that way. His jealousy is entirely perfect. It's appropriate, and it's even praiseworthy. Whereas our jealousy is usually an expression of the attitude, I want what you've got and I hate you because you have it and I don't have it. God's jealousy is of another sort. It's rooted in a zeal to protect a love relationship or avenge what is broken. I love the way Tim Keller says it. He says, your jealousy is love gone extinct. Whereas God's jealousy is love fighting extinction. Your jealousy is love gone extinct. God's jealousy is love fighting extinction. In other words, our jealousy morphs into hatred, whereas God's jealousy stays love. Packer comments, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite, as human jealousy so often is, but appears instead as a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. You see, God's jealousy is a function of his love. Israel and God's people are God's bride, and he will not tolerate our giving ourselves to another. I mean, that should make sense. A husband who is not jealous for his wife's affections is not a good husband. If a husband doesn't care that his wife is giving herself to others in a way that is supposed to be reserved only for him, then he doesn't care for his wife. And if you don't care that your spouse is running around with somebody else, I don't know that you love your spouse. There is a holy and a right kind of jealousy. God cares fiercely for his people. And he wants us, he desires of us, he requires that we give to him our whole hearts. He wants what is rightfully his, 
Our affections. Does he have your affections? Who has first place in your heart? God's jealousy for us, his unstopping, his unfailing love should lead us to have a zeal for his glory that is in direct proportion to his zeal or his jealousy for us. Love how J.C. Ryle talks about this. He says, a zealous man only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God, whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame. For all this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing. And that one thing is to please God and advance God's glory. Do you burn for God like this? What is the one thing you burn for in life? Because let me tell you, God cares nothing for half-hearted obedience. Half-hearted and trite obedience is no obedience. Satan is happy happy to leave us content in our tepid, lukewarm religion. I mean, did it ever occur to you that that lukewarmness is actually a violation of the first and second commandments? See, to the extent that we are lukewarm in our attitudes towards God, we are putting things, idols, ahead of and in place of him. To the extent we're lukewarm in our attitude toward God, we are worshiping other things. Whatever or whomever makes your heart sing is your true God. Whatever or whomever you burn for is the counterfeit God that you are serving if it is not Jesus. God does not accept half-hearted devotion. We read of his reaction to this type of muted piety in Revelation 3, uh, 15 and 16. It's a passage with which most of us are familiar, but allow me to read it to you. I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you, spew you out of my mouth. Listen to his prescription to the church that he writes in verse 19, the same chapter. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Repent of your lukewarmness, he says. I wonder, does God have first place in your heart? Does he have your affections? Or has your love for God gone extinct and morphed into some kind of uh, once-a-week religious religiosity? My prayer is that we would be patently discontent with being nothing more than a sound and respectable kind of church. A kind of church that is lukewarm and despicable to the Lord Jesus. It would be better for me to me if we would close our doors forever and shut down the whole operation if we, not love, if we don't love Jesus first and foremost. If we weren't most passionate about his kingdom. I hope that we would never be content with just the status quo. 
prayer is that we would be consumed by God's jealous love for us and zealous for his glory. Do you love God like this? God, the second commandment teaches us that we must love God exclusively. This is much harder to do than first meets the eye because uh, all of us typically don't bow down to literal physical idols, right? But we do bow our heads in worship to less obvious idols. We worship idols when we don't worship God first. I think what makes us especially prone to worshiping the idols we hide in our hearts is the fact that uh, these idols aren't necessarily bad things, but anything. And did you catch that right? An idol is not a bad thing. It's anything. It's anything that you love more than God. We, we, we are more than capable of living for things, but it's worshiping things like career, wealth, sex, power, control, routine, comfort, the approval of others, family, this goes on and on and on, rather than living for the one true God. We are capable of putting anything on the throne of our lives instead of the God who belongs there. And and true, many of these things are important. Many of them are good things, but an idol isn't bad things. It's anything that you love more than God. So don't pull the wool over your eyes. Don't sacrifice what is supremely important on the altar of that which is really important. God supersedes all else. He is more important than everything else. So that our love for him should make our love for everything else look like hatred. gospel of Christ must not be relegated to second best. Jesus will not tolerate other gods. And he will not tolerate you giving your utmost devotion to anyone but him. So two two applications thus far. Uh, We're asking the questions, do you know God? The who behind the first commandment. And do you love God? Do you love him exclusively according to the second commandment? Now, there is a third application question here, which I'm going to give to you at the front end. It's this. Do you worship God according to his revelation of himself? Right? The question's kind of pregnant with the answer. So the first commandment gives us the who of our worship. We want to worship Yahweh. And the second commandment gives us the how of our worship. We want to worship him exclusively and according to his revelation of himself. And once we put all of these together, we should, I hope, end up with our main idea. The God who created and redeems reveals himself and how he is to be loved or worshipped. God wants loved exclusively and according to who he is. He wants us to love the real him, right? Not some version of him, some image of him that we've created in our minds. So in the same way that my wife wants me to love her according to who she is rather than who someone else is, that's what God wants from us. So, so for example, um, let's say my wife's favorite food is salmon over top of butternut risotto. I have a poor memory, so I don't know if that's it or not, maybe. But we'll pretend that it is. Salmon on top of butternut risotto, and I invite her to a special dinner. I say, I'm going to prepare for you your favorite. And then she, she comes to this special dinner, and she shows up, 
and I have one of those fancy little things you pull the top off of for some reason. I don't even know that they make those anymore, maybe just in cartoons. But, but I pull off the top of it, and underneath is not butternut risotto and salmon, but buffalo wings, flats only, of course. I don't like the drumsticks, the wingy parts. That's where it's at. Flats only, and then the, instead of serving water, which is the only thing she likes to drink, uh, there's a tall pint of beer. And I've prepared for her, not her favorite, not what she likes, but my favorite, according to what I like. Now, Chelsea is, she's pretty gracious, so she'd probably let it slide, but the truth is I've failed to love her in this situation, good as my intentions may have been. You see, I've failed to love her because I haven't taken the time to listen and get to know her as she really is. Instead, I've created a version of her according to my own tastes that exists only in my imagination. See, I'm called to love the wife I have, not the one I've made up or think that I want. Likewise, we are called to love and worship the God who is, not the God we think we want not the God that we've created in our imaginations. So to recap, two things are required in order for me to love my wife well. She has to tell me about herself. And here's the hard part. I have to listen. In the same way, in order for us to love God well, he has to tell us about himself. He has. And here's the hard part. We have to listen. God tells us about himself and yet we refuse to listen and attempt to make him our favorite meal rather than his own. To worship him according to the way we want rather than the way he wants. We create a version of him according to our own tastes that exists only in our imagination. We make and shape our own uh, golden calf versions of God. We don't like what he says about marriage and family and sex and relationships, and so we change him to approve what we approve. We don't want our God to be full of wrath. People don't like that, and so uh, we emphasize his love at the expense of his justice. We don't want our God to demand too much of our hearts, and so we make him okay with our uh, more than occasional skipping of church for other things. He understands, after all. We don't want our God to call us into intimate community with others, so we make him cool with our isolationist version of Christianity. We don't want our God to interfere with our routines or our comfort. So we make him happy to stay in his Sunday morning corner during the appropriate time slot. We don't want our God to command us to do anything really, but especially awkward things. So we make him uncaring about our evangelism. We don't want our God to require us to forgive others as we've been forgiven. So we make him willing to forgive us, but not those who have wronged us. He's our God. He's on our side after all. We don't want our God to order us to turn from certain sins that we like, and so we make him pleased to turn a blind eye to our evil. When we do these things, one of these things, all of these things, when we try to change God, try to curtail his glory, we end up with a counterfeit God that looks nothing like the Christian God of the Bible. This is how we break the second commandment. This is why God commands us to worship him exclusively and according to his revelation of himself. He wants to be loved and worshipped for who he is, not some figment of your imagination that is unable to create 
unable to save, unable to satisfy, and unable to change you from one degree of glory to another. I think sadly, C.S. Lewis was right when he wrote, we want not so much a father, but a grandfather in heaven. A God who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so long as they are contented? Now, some of y'all are grandparents, and so you know what Lewis is getting at here, right? You know what it's like to pump other people's kids full of candy and chocolate and goodies and, and give them whatever they want before returning them to their parents, right? I think spoiling is what they call that. But what happens if we give a four-year-old everything he wants all the time? How's that going to go? Not well, right? What about a 14-year-old? If we gave a 14-year-old everything he or she wanted, how would that go? Probably not much better. What about a 45-year-old? Some of you are getting a little worried now. Wait a minute. It's still probably not going to go that well. Because the way you feel about your dumb four-year-old self all the way back when was probably the way you felt about your 14-year-old self when you were 17 and the way you felt about your 17-year-old self when you turned 27 and the way you felt about your 27-year-old self when you turned 40, so on and so forth. Odds are, 10 years from now, you're going to look back at this version of yourself and go, that guy was dumb, right? It's a good thing God didn't give him everything he wanted. It would have been awful. Here's the point. We idolatrously want to fashion God into an idol that will give us whatever we want. A grandfather in heaven, if you will. But the truth is, often what we think will make us happy will only destroy us. We're all like children. We need our heavenly father to tell us who we are, what's good for us, and how we will flourish. And God tells us who we are by telling us who he is. And thankfully, he he tells us exactly who he is and how to love him back. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods beside me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or in the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sin to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Our God tells us who he is. He's the one who created. He's the one who redeems the one who saves us out of slavery. He's the one who draws us out of sin and suffering and into relationship and life with him. Romans 6, 22-23 says it this way, But now, since you have been liberated from sin and have become enslaved to God, that's a good kind of slavery, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification. And the end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So who are we? We are the children of promise. The people of God, those who have been crucified with Christ and will be raised from the dead into everlasting life like Christ. Who are we? We are the bride of Christ, his beloved. We are those who keep the commands of God, not because we have to, but because we want to. 
We want to do this because God who created us despite our rejection of him, despite our adultery through idolatry, has never stopped being jealous for us. He's never stopped loving us. At the cross, God says, I am yours and you are mine. It's in response to this love that we love him. It is the gospel that makes us to see ourselves truly as we were meant to be. And we can't know who we were meant to be until God tells us who he is. God's the only person of whom we can truly say, Jerry Maguire style, you complete me. He not only completes us, but makes us into the radiant kings and queens of the universe that we were created to be. When we see who God is, we realize who we are and begin to understand the Ten Commandments romantically. You know you're really in love with someone when your attitude towards them is, your wish is my command. This is the attitude of those who know and love God. This is the attitude of those who are united to Jesus by faith. This is what we say in response to the ravishing love of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Your wish is my command. These ten words are not burdensome. Friends, these, these ten words are our birthright as the people of God. And it is our joy to keep them. It is a delightful duty to love God back. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would keep us from idols. Help us to recognize that idolatry isn't just worshiping false gods, but also trying to worship you, the true God, in false ways. Keep us from putting ourselves in the arms of other lovers. Help us to be exclusively devoted to you, the God who loves us, gave himself for us. We thank you, Father, that you have given us grace upon grace in our Lord Jesus Christ, that you've called us to yourself, that you have had mercy on us. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for entrusting us with the message of the gospel. Thank you for showing us yourself that we might understand ourselves and love you well. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.